you would, let me ask you to open up your Bibles, to turn with me once again to the book of Romans, chapter 8. The book of Romans, chapter 8. This morning we are making a transition in our unpacking of this wonderful chapter. Uh, To this point, in the first four verses in the book of Romans, uh, Paul has been reminding us of the gospel. He has been reminding us of the glorious truth that sinners are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul has been teaching us again that Christ is our righteousness. If we are in Him, we are truly in Him, then there is no condemnation for us. Uh, Dear friend, if you are in Christ, if you are truly a Christian... There is no condemnation of God towards you. You are now and forever saved from that place called hell. You have fellowship with God. You are on your way to heaven. But then at the end of verse 4, Paul makes a tremendously important statement. Look at the second half of Romans 8 verse 4. Paul says this. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Friends, Paul is telling us here who it is that Christ died for. He is telling us who it is that has had their sins paid for on the cross. These are the ones who by grace no longer need to fear the judgment of God. The law has been satisfied for these people. These are the most blessed people in the world. These are the people for whom Romans 8 verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4 are true. Those who walk according to the Spirit. Church, there are 7 billion people on this planet. And we can separate them into two groups. There is the wheat And there is the chaff. There are the sheep. There are the goats. There are those who are purchased by the blood of Christ. And there are those who have their sins left to be paid for in hell. Friends, we could look around this room. Every one of us in this room fits into one of these two categories. Today, we sit side by side in this sanctuary. But it might be that... The different people in this room are headed to two very different destinies. The most important question we can ask concerning ourselves is this. Am I one of those who is in Christ? How can I know that Romans 8, 1, 2, 3, 4 is true of me? How can I know that my sins are paid for? That I am going to heaven. That that things are right between me and God. That we are reconciled. That there is peace between us. Am I a saved person? That's what really matters. Paul's answer is clear. If you live according to the flesh, you are not saved. These things are not true of you. But if you live according to the Spirit, you are. If you live according to the flesh, your sins are not yet paid for. You will have to pay for them one day. 
If you live according to the Spirit, then Christ has taken your place on the cross. He has borne your punishment. You are going to live in the grace and mercy of God forever and ever. In other words, Paul says this is everything. Do you live according to the flesh or do you live according to the Spirit? And the rest of Romans 8, beginning in verse 5, unpacks the end of verse 4. Everything else that we're going to study in Romans 8 is an unpacking of this phrase at the end of verse 4. Paul now moves from reminding us of the gospel to teaching us what it means to live as a saved person. He's asking the question, what do gospel people look like? What do real Christians look like? And his answer is that the Spirit is at work in them. And that these people live according to spiritual principles. The rest of this chapter is about life in the Spirit. And it is a wonderful, deeply encouraging truth that Paul was going to be unpacking about what it means to live in the Spirit. But he doesn't go straight to the glory. He, he stops. He makes a contrast first. He wants to make sure that we understand the difference between life in the spirit and life in the flesh. This is the difference between who we used to be before we were saved and who we are now, now that we are saved. And it could be that for some of you in this room, life in the flesh is all you've ever known. You don't know what life in the spirit is. You've never tasted it. You're still in the flesh. You're still in deep trouble before Almighty God. Folks, these verses are crucially important. These verses are more important than anything else happening in your life right now. These next four verses that we're going to be studying are not mainly about how to have a good marriage or how to raise your children or how to act in the workplace. These verses are not about how to handle bouts with depression or how to tolerate annoying people. Those are practical things that are, that are important. But these verses speak to something that is far more important. Those issues are dealing with symptoms. But these verses are going to the root. And the root is this. Have you been born again? Is the Spirit dwelling within you? Now, before we begin to unpack verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, what it means to live in the flesh and what it means to live in the spirit, I need to make two observations about the end of verse 4. And the first observation is this. This is yet one more piece of scriptural evidence that pluralism is a lie. We see this everywhere in the Bible, and I keep pointing it out to you. Why? Because pluralism is everywhere in our society right now. There are so many teaching this idea that multiple roads lead to God. Jesus is one way to heaven, but he is not the only way to heaven. Even the Pope, the Pope said recently that he expects to see atheists in heaven. When the Pope becomes a pluralist, things are crazy in this world. And so you need to know what the Bible says. Romans 8 verse 4 says that God has made a way of salvation. 
how He sent His Son. We saw it the last two weeks. He condemned sin in the flesh in His Son. For whom? For whom did God do this? For whom has salvation been made? End of verse 4. For those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Any spirit? For those who walk according to any spirit? No. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit who is Christocentric. The Holy Spirit that all of His work on this earth is to glorify the name of Jesus. There is no such thing as living in the Spirit and not being in love with Jesus. The Spirit of God points to Jesus. He he loves to honor Jesus. The Spirit does not come into any person's life apart from the message of Jesus. So when we read the end of verse 4, we read there's only one way of salvation. You must be a person who lives according to the Spirit. The Spirit of who? The Spirit of Christ. And if you don't love Christ, if you're not believing in Christ, if Christ is not everything to you, then you don't have His Spirit. And that is the only way of salvation. Let the skeptics argue. Let the scoffers scoff. The religious experts on, MB, on NPR, NBC, any three letters, doesn't really matter, does it? All of them are about the same in the end. They talk about how all religions get us to the same place. But in the end, we have the word of God. And the question is this. What do you trust? Do you trust what the Bible says or do you trust what the experts say? And who is the greater expert on this? God or the experts? The second observation that I want to make about Romans 8 verse 4 is that this is another text in the Bible that teaches the doctrine of limited atonement. Now, this is a very controversial doctrine, even among godly believers in Christ. But friends, this is one of the clearest texts in the Bible that teaches this truth. It's not unclear in this verse. Verses 3 and 4. God condemned sin in the flesh. That's the atonement, folks. That's God fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. It's Christ dying on the cross, bearing the wrath of God, making atonement. For who? For whom did God do this? For whom did Christ do this? For whom did Christ's blood atone? Does not say for everybody in the world. The answer given, second half of verse 4, is that it is for those who are walking according to the Spirit. It is believers. It is Christians. We who believe in limited atonement are not saying that Jesus' blood wasn't sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. It certainly was. It absolutely was sufficient. And we are not saying that Jesus' death on the cross was not a call for everyone to believe. It is. The death of Christ on the cross is an invitation for everyone to turn from their sins and believe on Jesus. What we're saying is this. In the purpose and design of God, Christ on the cross 
actually paid for the sins of believers. And he did not pay for the sins of unbelievers. They still have their sins to pay for. God does not punish the same sins twice. Jesus is not going to bear the wrath of God for sins that are then going to be punished twice, a second time in hell. No, it is the church. It is all who believe on Christ who have been purchased of God on the cross. Our catechism says it this way. For whom did Christ accomplish redemption? Answer, the redemption accomplished by Christ, the universal and infinite in its sufficiency, was particular in its design, redeeming only the elect of God, all those who turn from sin and believe the gospel. Friends, there is a connection between these two points. The doctrine of limited atonement protects against pluralism. Because if you believe that Christ actually atoned for the sins of every person on planet earth, then you open the door to saying that there are other ways to God than just faith in Jesus. That is, there are people who openly teach, yes, Jesus is the only way to God, but he did that for everyone on the cross. And now, it doesn't matter what religion you come through, Jesus' blood paid for you. Whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're an occultist, whether you're an atheist. If you really believe what you believe with all your heart, whether it's right or wrong, then Jesus died for you and you can go to heaven. Limited atonement protects against that kind of false teaching. Who did Christ die for on the cross? Every person who believes. Which means the most important thing in the world is this. Do you believe? Now, in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul begins to contrast these two different ways of living. Life in the Spirit and life in the flesh. And he wants us to see these two ways of living side by side. It's it's two different paths. One path leads to heaven. One path leads to hell. And it is very important that we know which path we are on. So here's how we're going to study these four verses. This Lord's Day, we're going to look at the bad path. We're going to look at life in the flesh. This morning, this evening, that's where we're going to be. We're going to see Paul's description of the unbelieving person. And we're going to test ourselves and make sure it's not us. And the next Lord's Day, and probably the next Lord's Day after that, we're going to spend looking at life in the Spirit. And the way Paul describes the person who is indwelt by the Spirit of God. But today, let's consider life in the flesh. And let's read verses 5 through 8. Beginning in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
So the first thing that Paul tells us to help us identify what it means to live according to the flesh is this. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Mount Hermon, where is your mind this morning? On what is your mind set? This is huge. What occupies your mind? What has preeminence in your mind? There are two words that Paul uses that we need to make sure we understand. And the first is this word mind. And he isn't just talking about your brain. This word translated mind, it, it, it's broader in Greek than our English translation. It, it, it's hard to get the whole idea across. It's not just that people who live according to the flesh think about fleshly things in their brains. It describes their whole disposition. The will is involved. The, the emotions are involved. What's involved here is what a person enjoys, what a person desires, what occupies a person's life and thinking. It is really important to understand, church, that we are not first and foremost governed by our minds. We are governed by our hearts. When our hearts are corrupt or wicked, this affects our minds. When we are sinners, depraved, as the Bible says we are, our minds find enjoyment in contemplating vile things. Indeed, our minds become more prone to form a positive perspective on wickedness. Our minds begin to justify wickedness. We've said it a hundred times. Our minds are not fair and balanced. We are not objective people. And when we are by nature unbelievers, our minds are biased towards justifying sin. When it's my sin. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to justify your sin. I want to judge your sin. But when it's my sin, suddenly my mind can come up with a thousand reasons why it's okay for me in this situation. Sure, if it was any other person in any other situation, I would say this is wrong. But for me, in this situation, let me make off a list of why right now this is right for me. This is what our mind does. Our minds have an unholy bent by nature. Watch children. Watch children play. Watch how they justify their actions. Johnny, why did you hit Steve? Because he took my toy. Because he hit me first. Because he said I was dumb. Do any of those justify hitting another person? No. But we, in our minds, we use that kind of false reasoning, that kind of false logic. We are not driven by a love for what is good and what is holy. We are driven by a love for me, a self-centeredness, a, self, a selfishness, an unholy desire to take care of me. And that's what Paul is getting at when he says that the mind is set on the things of the flesh. We have this whole disposition of being concerned with us and the stuff of this world. And then there's this word flesh. And the word flesh here refers to everything that is contrary to the spirit. Everything inside of us that tends towards sin. Everything inside of us that tends away from holiness. 
And so what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that one mark of those who are unsaved, one characteristic of those who are headed for hell is this. Their minds are caught up in things that are contrary to God. This is what dominates them. This is the pitch of their life. They are caught up in a lifestyle, in a way of living, in a way of thinking that is contrary to God. And so to test yourself, let me show you three ways that this can appear. Three ways of living according to the flesh. The first and most obvious way is this, that you live with a mind set on sinful things. If your mind indulges willfully thoughts of hatred or bitterness towards others, Paul is describing you here. If if your mind indulges willfully in thoughts of lust or illicit sensual things, you are being described here. If your mind indulges in continual thoughts of greed or coveting or jealousy, you are being described here. Don't misunderstand. This verse is not about sometimes being tempted in these directions. All of us are sometimes tempted in these directions. No, this verse is about your mind regularly going in these directions. Your mind lives in these directions. Your mind has a disposition towards these things. You find yourself consistently having these kinds of thoughts and there's no pushback. You don't even try to push these thoughts out of your mind. You enjoy them. You you live in them. And if that's you, you need to come to Christ. Because that's life according to the flesh. Then a second way that your mind can be set on the flesh is this. It's when you allow yourself to make judgments with no regard to God. In other words, this is when we decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil based on our preferences and not based on what God has declared. If your mind is not being renewed by the Spirit through the Word, but instead if your mind is just operating on its own, making its own decisions about what is wise and what is foolish, making its own judgments about what is true and what is false, you do not have the Spirit of God. You are living in blindness. You don't know that you're blind, but you're blind. You're living according to the flesh. You are seeking to be a God to yourself. Living according to the Spirit is when you trust God in all these things. But life in the flesh is when you trust yourself to make all these judgments about what is good and right, wise or foolish. And then there is a third way that our minds can be set on the flesh. And this is perhaps the most subtle of all. And dear friends, I fear that there are many in Rocky Mount of whom this is probably true. And these people would call themselves Christians. These people would say, I'm a saved person. These are people that would say, I don't indulge in lustful or jealous or bitter thoughts. They would say, I agree with God on what is good and what is bad. My standards of decency are the Bible's standards of decency. But here's the thing. As these people live their lives each day, as they live their lives and think about a thousand different things every day, 
they live disconnected from God. You see, to have a fleshly mind doesn't mean that you're always thinking about evil things. It might just mean that you're thinking about regular things with no connection to God. You're caught up in worldliness. You're living for today. Your mind is not set on things above. You're not seeking first the kingdom of God. No, you're, you're like a seed planted among thorns. The plant begins to grow, but it gets so entangled in the thorns of this world and this life and the, the concerns of today and the needs of today. And I got to get this done and I want to accomplish that. And, I, and God's completely out of the picture. He's like a foreign entity to your daily life. These are the people for whom if their mind is a palace, Jesus is in one closet and the rest of the world fills up most of the palace. These people are losing the eternal for the things that are passing. You see, for the true Christian, everything is related to God. We eat and we drink and we live and we work and we play and we do all things for the glory of God. Everything is connected to God. Our mind belongs to God. He fills the palace. He's the owner of the palace. Every room is his room. Christians think about the stuff of the world all the time. Don't we? We have to think about the stuff of the world. If we're going to live in this world, we have to think about what are we having for lunch. Thinking about that now? What are you thinking about? Right? We think about these things, but we don't think about them with God far and way off somewhere. Rather, we realize that everything is connected to God and we're learning by the Spirit to approach everything through a God-centered lens. My assessment of many in our community is that they say, hey, my mind is not caught up in filthy things. And that might be right. And they say, my standards of decency are the same as the Bible's, and that might be right. But in the end, Jesus does not have their heart, and so he doesn't have their mind. Folks, a true Christian is someone who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does God have your mind? What is your mind set in this world? Paul says something else about this at the beginning of verse 6. The first thing about living in the flesh is that people who live in the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But then he says this, beginning of verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. Now make sure you feel the weight of this because this is not a small matter. What does Paul mean when he says that to set the mind on the flesh is death? He's not talking about physical death because all people die physically, whether your mind's on the spirit or whether your mind's on the flesh. So, so what does he mean? Well, we might take it to mean that the consequence of living with your mind set on the flesh is death. The death refers here to judgment in hell. That This refers to eternal death. And make no mistake, church, if you are living this way, if you walk this path of living disconnected from God, your mind caught up in the stuff of this world, God has no place in your life, the consequence will be hell. Eternal death is your destiny if you walk that path. 
You're being warned this morning. You're being loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. You're here. You're hearing this preached to you. Will you take action? God looks upon the world of people trampling his glory, dishonoring his name, worthy of infinite love and adoration. And his holy, divine soul is disgusted at the sin in this world. His own holiness is crying out within him to pour out his judgment on all the wickedness of this world. But our God is so patient. And he withholds his judgment. And he brings us warnings like this. And he calls us to repent. And he says, stop walking that way. Trust my son. Turn around. But church, God's patience will not last forever. And there will be a day when his patience with you will be done. And the cup of your sins will have reached the brim. And whether it's the day you die, whether it's the day Jesus comes back, whichever happens first, I don't know which is going to happen first. But if you have not turned from your sins and trusted Christ, you will experience that consequence of eternal death in hell. But... I think there's another way of reading this word that's even more accurate. And that really gets at what Paul was saying. Yes, setting your mind on the flesh and living that way will lead you to hell. But I think what Paul was saying is that if you're living in the flesh, if you're setting your mind on the flesh, you are living in a state of death right now. When he says, beginning of verse 6, that to set the mind on the flesh is death, I think he is saying that if you are here right now, this Sunday morning, and your mind is set on the stuff of this world, disconnected from God, your mind is set on sinful things or just normal things without God in the picture, then you are in a state of death now. You are presently alive but dead. That is, your lungs are working and your heart is beating, your brain is waving. But when it comes to God, you are dead to Him. You have no relationship with Him except one of judgment. You have made yourself His enemy. You have turned against Him. There is no vibrant relationship there. You are dead to everything that is good and holy. You are dead to the one who could satisfy the deepest desires and needs of your soul. Here is God, the fountain of everlasting water. The one you truly need more than anything in the world. And you've disconnected yourself. You're living according to the flesh. Friends, there is no higher good than God himself. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. To know God through Jesus Christ is to be really alive. To know God through Jesus Christ is to be alive as we were meant to be alive. But to not know God, to be against God, to live with no God in your world is to be dead. It is to be half human. It is to be a perversion of what you were created to be. It's like sitting outside the gates of Disney World. And inside the gates are a thousand pleasures greater than you've ever known. But you're sitting outside the gates and you're blind. You don't see all the joy that's in there. And you found a pebble and you're playing with the pebble outside the gates. And you think, this is life. This is what I came for. You were created to go inside the gates. 
You were created to know the magic kingdom. This is how so many are. They think that God is so far off. He doesn't even come into place in their life. There's no place for him in their minds. He certainly doesn't dominate their minds. Folks, God is not far off. God is near. He is here. He is omnipresent. It is only the delusions of your mind that make him seem so far off. Friends, don't continue to live in a state of spiritual death. Well, here's the thing. We're going to close this way. There is only one cure for those who are spiritually dead. You must be made alive. The only hope for the spiritually dead is that they would become alive. And friend, there is absolutely nothing you can do to make yourself spiritually alive. You can't give yourself a new heart. You can't open your own blind eyes. You can't give yourself new desires. Your only hope is for God to do a work upon you. What you need is spiritual heart surgery. And there is only one who was qualified to do it. The great physician of souls, Jesus Christ. Jesus looked at Nicodemus. He said, you must be born again. And I say to any in this room... And you're just living your life day after day, week after week, month after month. And God does not dominate your life. He's just some little part of your life. Or maybe he's not even in your life. And you're caught up making your own judgments. And you're living your life your own way. If that's you, you are being described here. And Jesus says to you, you must be born again. Or you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't do it, but God can. And if there is anything within you that desires to be made new, if there is anything within you that desires to see, to taste and to see that the Lord is good, if there is anything within you that wants to live according to the Spirit, following Jesus, taking the path that leads to everlasting life and and happiness, then plead with God, give me a new heart, make me new. And if you can, if the Spirit is enabling you, you call out on Christ for salvation. You say, Jesus, I am a sinner and I have been living in blindness for so long. I don't want to be blind anymore. And I don't want to live my own way. You're smarter than me. You're wiser than me. You love me more than I love myself. Jesus, help me to trust you. Teach me to trust you when you save me. Be like that man in the Gospels who cried out, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Call out on Christ. He will save you. And you will be made new. You can begin to know what we're going to see next week. What it means to live life in the Spirit of Christ. It is a glorious thing. Let's pray.